and I think I had the invitation to speak here before this, all this COVID craziness hits, so it's so good to be back together again. And we want to say just thank you for our support. I know this, uh, this time has been challenging for many ministries, many churches, but uh, you folks as a church have really stood with us uh, in your uh, prayer support, in your finances, and uh, we are very, very grateful for that. Also wanted to just say how proud I am of you as a church as you've navigated all these COVID-19 restrictions and, and being, you know, working within the guidelines but opening uh, this uh, church to gather uh, as soon as was uh, reasonably uh, possible to do so. Just kind of been following that on Facebook and just wanted to commend the leadership for how uh, forward thinking you've been in, uh, in moving forward with uh, gathering together again. That is so exciting to see. Well, this morning I want to speak on the topic of a hero's welcome home. A hero's welcome home. Now, uh, I believe Howard was here last week, right? Howard Weir? Okay, good. So at least I listened to the right sermon. He was speaking kind of on, on the faith of, actually I should be asking you, what did Howard speak on last week? <laughs> anyway, he was talking about, uh, about the faith of people and how, you know, in Jesus' ministry that the, uh, the power was just really manifest as, uh, as people responded in faith. And this morning, we want to look at kind of a different part of that story. As Jesus was ministering, some did not respond in faith. When I think of this title, A Hero's Welcome Home, it reminds me of uh, back when I was a kid, we... Um, we had this joke book, and it was the size of a Sears catalog. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm a bit of a collector, uh, as, as my wife will tell you. But uh, one of my favorite collections is my joke books. You know, whenever I stop by a thrift shop or a garage sale or whatever, and I see a joke book I don't, don't have, I buy it. You know, and so we've got this big collection of joke books. We keep one by our bed just to kind of, you know, uh, in, the, in the car a lot of times and stuff. So we'll read jokes back and forth. I, I'm so thankful for uh, a wife with a great sense of humor. In fact, she had me laughing this morning. We got up really early kind of thing. And, uh, and anyway, uh, we, uh, when COVID hit, she said, I want chickens. You know, I want, I want to get some laying hens. So we got ourselves eight laying hens, you know. And they are very amusing. They've kept us really occupied, really amused a lot of times. And, I mean, those of you that are farmers and some of you have, have chickens, you know all this stuff. So just, you know, whatever. But... Uh, they, they eat the most weird things, okay? I mean, normally we feed them grains and that kind of thing, and they, and they kind of polish off all the grass that we have in their, in their pen, in their enclosure, and that kind of thing. But they, and pity any grasshopper or cricket that enters that enclosure, because they're gone just like that, you know? But did you know, they also eat frogs, okay? I mean, I shouldn't be telling, don't, don't tell this to your kids or grandkids, okay? But they eat frogs, and I found out one day, true story, they actually eat mice, okay? And, and I mean, you're probably going, this sermon has come off the rails already kind of thing. But anyway, so, so I told Natalie, hey, I, I, fed, I fed the chickens this mouse, you know? And she's like, oh, that's terrible. You know, she's totally grossed out kind of thing. She's like, I am not going to eat the eggs that come, you know, like for some time after this, you know? And I said, well, I'll take my chances. I'll, you know, I'll just, you know, I'll eat them separately. I'm not too worried kind of thing. And I was wondering where those eggs had gone, you know? So this morning I opened this, this crate of eggs and li her little sticky note said, these are for you. These are for you. I, th I thought it was hilarious, but anyway, <laughs> yeah. A hero's welcome home. Right, let's get back on track here. It reminds me of, uh, of oh yeah, where this was going was um, way back when in this big thick joke book we had was a story 
of this famous person. This person had come from, you know, little town America and made it big in Hollywood and uh, came back to her hometown for, um, uh, for this celebration kind of thing. And so they had the ticker tape flying. They had the bands playing and that kind of thing just to celebrate this famous actress now coming home to her hometown. Well, one of the townsfolk said, hey, did you know that they just set up a sign in front of your house, you know, in front of the house where you grew up? And this actress is like, oh, really? What does it say? The townsperson says, it says, stop. <laughs> they had put up a new, <laughs> pardon me, they had put up a new stop sign in front of her house. Now, now I probably need to rewind at this point. I, when we had this joke book as a kid, I would be sitting there Saturday mornings reading joke after joke, just laughing, laughing, laughing. My brother would walk into the room. He'd be like, what's so funny? What's so funny? And I'd show it, point him the joke and read it to him. Kind of, he's like, that's not funny kind of thing. And so anyway, so you're probably like, that wasn't very funny. So anyway, the point is, we're going to talk about a hero's welcome home, uh, whether the jokes die or not. Okay. Jesus uh, had been baptized. You can uh, open up your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 3. We're going to be looking at uh, Lucanet, looking at uh, Luke chapter 4. But we'll start, kind of jump in at verse uh, 21 of chapter 3. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. Okay. Now, we need to kind of establish the uh, geographical context here. So you'll remember that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, kind of in the southern part there, uh, the Judea part. And then from there, uh, he grew up, of course, in Nazareth, which was a little, little bit further north there in Galilee. But to get baptized, he came down to the Jordan River. And that's where John was baptizing. And so that's where Jesus came to be baptized. Verse 22 of Luke 3 and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Beautiful verse that talks about the Trinity together, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. The Holy Spirit coming uh, in bodily form like a dove, and of course Jesus being baptized, and then God the Father speaking from heaven. And notice the words, that God the Father says, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Now what is unique, what is interesting about what the Heavenly Father says to his son at that point? Had Jesus done any miracles by then? Had Jesus done any teaching? No. But even at the start of his ministry, the Father said, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Pleased. You know, sometimes we think in the Christian life that we got to do all this stuff. We got we to, you know, burn out for Jesus kind of thing. But you know what? The fact that he sent his son, he loves us. He gave his son because of his deep, deep love for us. So Jesus gets baptized. And uh, of course, from there, he goes into the wilderness to uh, experience temptation. And we don't know exactly where that temptation happened, but somewhere uh, just a little bit west of the Dead Sea. There's kind of a wilderness there. And so Jesus was tempted uh, by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. And uh, you'll remember those temptations, right? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And that's a whole sermon in itself. Verse 13, when the devil had ended every, uh, every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the story kind of uh, goes from Jesus' baptism to his temptation 
And then it kind of jumps to uh, Jesus returning to his hometown in Luke chapter 4. Now, there's a whole bunch of the story that's actually missing there. And so this is where the nice thing, the different gospel writers tell different parts of the story. So to find out what happened between Jesus' baptism and temptation and then him showing up in his hometown, we've got to go over to the book of John where uh, John fills in the details. And John, after Jesus' uh, temptation, says that Jesus goes to Judea, and that's where he called his disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, John, and the other eight of the 12 disciples. And then from there, he goes north. He goes up to a place called Cana, where he turns the water into wine. You remember that story? Probably all familiar with that. Kind of reminds me of a fellow that was driving down the road. He's kind of weaving all over the place, you know, and the state trooper pulled him over and said, hey, buddy, you been into the drinking kind of thing? He's like, no, no, just my water over here, you know? And the officer said, you know, hand it over, you know? The guy hands him the bottle, and the officer opens it up, and he's like, this isn't water, this is wine. And the driver's like, Lord, you did it again, you know? <laughs> So that's in John, that part, not the joke, but the story, the actual story is in uh, John, I think, chapter 2. Well, then Jesus comes back down to Jerusalem for the feast, and the Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem three times a year, and the biggest feast, of course, was the Passover. And as Jesus is in Jerusalem at that time for the, for the feast, he finds the uh, temple full of people that are, you know, trading, buying and selling. It's kind of like a, you know, kind of like a, a flea market it's basically turned into. And so, of course, he turns over the tables, chases these people out of the temple and says, stop turning my father's house, this house of prayer, into a den of thieves. After that, uh, by night, there's a, there's a Jewish leader that comes and talks to Jesus, a guy by the name of Nicodemus, comes to Jesus by night and says, you know, teacher, we know you're a man come from God, because how could anyone do miracles except that God were with him? And of course, Jesus, uh, you know, you'll remember, it's a classic passage of scripture. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And, and Nicodemus is like, what? Does that mean I got to get back in my mummy's tummy and start this thing all over again? And Jesus said, no, no. Uh, you know, basically, you'll remember, like I said, a classic passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, great passage there in, in John chapter 3. Well, Jesus continues his ministry at that point in Judea. He baptizes and... <clears throat> And then I guess the, the Pharisees see this as going on. John is baptizing Jesus. Well, Jesus' disciples were baptizing. And they're like, oh, you know, Jesus and his, his people are, are out baptizing John the Baptist. And so they're kind of trying to stir up this controversy kind of thing. And so Jesus uh, moves uh, away from that area. And he goes, um, well, he, he goes toward Galilee. But the Bible says in John 4, he has to go through Samaria. Now, there's a whole backstory there. But normally... The Jews would go from that southern part and they would go as far around Samaria as they could because the Samaritans to them were this unclean people. They were kind of half-breeds, whatever you want to call it kind of thing. They weren't as pure as uh, the Jewish people. But the Bible said Jesus had to go through Samaria. And of course, you remember the story. Uh, Jesus meets the woman at the well uh, and basically he's, he's tired and, and she comes to draw water. He says, would you uh, give me a drink? And uh, anyway, great story. If you don't know the story of John chapter 4, uh, take some time this afternoon. It's a great story how Jesus reveals uh, himself as the Messiah to this uh, Samaritan woman. And of course, the, uh, she tells the townspeople in a town called Sychar, and uh, many of the townsfolk believe. Well, anyway, eventually, Jesus arrives in Galilee. And that's where we're going to pick up the story 
uh, here in Luke chapter 4 in the town of Nazareth. And uh, as Vern was reading, verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Now, before we go farther, note that it says, as his custom was. It was a, a regular practice uh, that he would spend his Sabbath days in uh, God's house in what was called the synagogue. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. We might say he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Oh, let's go back. One, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has uh, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus stops there. And uh, that may not strike us as unusual until we go back to where he was reading. He was reading in Isaiah 61, okay? Isaiah 61. Uh, you don't have to turn there unless you're really fast kind of thing. But I'll just read you what it says in Isaiah 61. Isaiah writes, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. And, and again, just, just as we start this verse, this is again where the Trinity is pictured together. The Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit, uh, the Lord God, and of course uh, Jesus all pictured all in this one verse. Really, really cool. He has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to pro proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the, the prison to those who are bound. So it's a little bit different than what Jesus quotes in, in Luke to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And again, that's where Jesus stops. But there's more to this story. Look at what it says in the rest of verse 2 in Isaiah 61. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Whoa. Uh, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Now, if you're like me, you hear those verses and a song we sang back in Sunday school kind of plays uh, in your mind. He gave me beauty for ashes. Do you guys remember that song? The Oil of Joy for Morning? Anybody remember that? No? Okay, I'm the only one that knows the song. Okay. Well, anyway, so Jesus stops in the middle of verse 2 and hands the scroll back to uh, the attendant. Uh, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, maybe let's, before we carry on, let's just jump back there to Isaiah 61 and ask the question, why did Jesus stop in the middle of verse 2? I mean, because he didn't finish the whole verse. Now, of course, back in those days, they didn't have chapter and verse. They just had scrolls kind of thing, and so there's just a bunch of writing. But the fact he stopped there is obviously significant. And the reason, I had to dig into the commentaries uh, here for that, but the reason he stopped is that, um, that basically his ministry is being described in verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, but the rest of the verse talks about what's still to come, okay? So verse 1 of Isaiah 61 and, and that first phrase of verse 2 described what Jesus came to do in his first coming, but the time of vengeance uh, and, and so on is uh, still future. So Jesus uh, basically reads this, he sits down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now that may strike us as being a little unusual as well, because here he, he gets up and he uh, reads the scroll and he sits down and everybody's staring at him, you know? And we kind of read that with Western eyes, right? I mean, Vern comes up, he reads the announcements, and he sits down and we're not all just kind of staring at him. 
staring at Vern kind of thing, unless, you know, unless his, his tie was a little crooked or whatever, and, and that kind of thing, but uh, not the case at all. But, uh, you know, so when you're finished up here, you, you sit down, and, and then the next person comes up. But in the, ta- in the synagogue, what they would do is the, the rabbi would, uh, humble, would, would stand to read the scripture and then would sit down to humbly teach. And so that's what's happening here. They're, they're waiting for Jesus to uh, teach them now. And so notice what he says. He began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine being there that day, you know, in the synagogue. And here's this, this uh, you know, uh, Jesus who's kind of growing up in this town as a carpenter's son. And he's like, he reads Isaiah 61, you know, about uh, uh, the day of the Lord and all that. And he says, you know what, folks, this is it. I'm here, you know. And uh, yeah, it's, it's quite a statement of uh, who uh, Jesus uh, was and, uh, and what he came to do. Now notice what follows. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So you kind of read those verses, and it's easy to kind of, you know, kind of just glaze through them and kind of thing. But there's a total change in tone that happens between verse 22 and verse 24. You know, they start off by marveling at his gracious words, and then they're questioning, okay, hey, isn't this just the the carpenter's son that grew up right here in Nazareth kind of thing. And Jesus responds and, and says, you know what? Uh, you've heard of the miracles I've done elsewhere and now you're basically just saying, oh, you know, do all these miracles here and so on. And in verse 24, you know, I get no respect in my hometown is essentially what he's saying. And again, this is the nice part about having four different accounts of the same story. If we go over to Matthew, we kind of read Matthew's angle on the same encounter. Matthew 13, verse 53, it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables that he departed from there. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? You know, so they're just overwhelmed, you know. But again, the skepticism, verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country and in his own house. So as they heard Jesus say these words, they respond with skepticism and uh, basically uh, rejection of what Jesus is saying. But notice as we get back to Luke, what Jesus says. I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And again, a lot of, lot of words there. What is he saying? Basically, he's saying his townspeople, the Jewish people, were rejecting him. And in the same way, in the days of Elijah, back in the Old Testament, the people... Uh, rejected Elijah's message and chose to worship idols and, and walk away from God. And as a result, Elijah, he had all these you know, widows, these people in need in Israel he could have ministered to, but no, he goes and ministers to someone 
in uh, the region of Sidon. His um, nemesis, the guy who followed him, Elisha. Uh, notice what it says, verse 27. And many lepers were in Israel in, in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Okay, so there's all these lepers in Israel, but who does Elisha uh, free from that leprosy? This army guy from the next country over, Naaman. You probably remember the story where he... He comes to Israel, he comes to, he comes to the king. Uh, I was just reading this uh, just the other day. And basically he's got this letter said, uh, it comes into Israel, it comes to the king and, and says, uh, I want you to heal me, kind of thing. And the king's like, this guy's just come here to pick a fight, kind of thing, you know. And anyway, so he kind of got his directions wrong. So they say, no, no, go talk to Elisha. And Elisha says, uh, go, dump, uh, go dunk yourself in, in the Jordan River seven times. And the guy's like, what do you mean? You know, we've got better rivers than that in my home country. I'm not going to dunk in this mucky, you know, Jordan River kind of thing. And his servant's like, well, why don't you just give it a shot, you know, kind of thing. And of course he does, and he's freed from his leprosy. But again, there's all these lepers in Israel, but Elisha ministers to this foreigner that comes in search of help. So here's Jesus using a couple of illustrations from the Old Testament of how even back then God's people were rejecting God and his prophets and it's same old, same old. You know, here's Jesus declaring to them today, you know, uh, that, that he is the Messiah. And they are rejecting him uh, once again as well. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built that they might throw him down over the cliff. And again, this is a very familiar story, but I thought of an analogy that, that might kind of bring it home. I was... Uh, I uh, spent my high school years just east of Winnipeg in a little uh, community of Dougald, and we went to this little Baptist church near there. And uh, then I went to college and um, took a course called homiletics. Big fancy word that means preaching, okay? And in homiletics, we had to do two sermons to our classmates and then a third sermon to an actual church, you know? And so, uh, so I called up the pastor of this little Baptist church and I said, hey, I've got to do this, got to do this sermon for my, for my class assignment. You know, would I be able to do a sermon there kind of thing, you know? And he's like, okay. So in this autumn of uh, 1986, I did this sermon and I don't remember a whole lot about it. The main thing I remember, this was, like I say, the first time I'd ever preached in a church. And I just, I was thinking this is about as much fun as going to the dentist, okay? You know, it was just, I mean, I was just so shaken in my boots. I was so nervous. It was just like, oh, man. And actually, truth be told, I don't think I preached again for like another 10 years after that. I was so traumatized kind of thing. But maybe not 10 years, but it was a number of years anyway. But imagine that night uh, there in, in Oak Bank as I was preaching. If I would have preached on Isaiah 61 and read all that stuff and said, today, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing, they would have said, uh, Harold, we know you're not the Messiah. You know, you've been in the sun too long, you know. You know, we know your family. They know you're not the Messiah either kind of thing, you know. And so that's probably the kind of reception that Jesus was encountering here in Luke chapter 4. Notice what it says in verse 30. Then uh, here they've got Jesus at the, the, you know, brow of the hill, basically. They're going to throw him down. And verse 30, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So he escapes uh, from their grasp. Well, as we go on in the story, it's kind of like Jesus' ministry changed at that point. And, and it's kind of like he, he took his ministry, and, and while he obviously uh, you know, was teaching people of the Jewish faith, there was also a heart for those of the Gentile faith as well. When he concluded all his sayings in uh, verse 1 of chapter 7, uh, he entered Capernaum. 
And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. So here's this uh, army guy, another army guy kind of thing, calls on Jesus uh, via the Jewish leaders. They say, you know what, this guy's been really good to us. Jesus, would you come heal, you know? And of course, Jesus does. And notice what he says in verse nine. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. I have not found such great faith, not even among God's chosen people. Wow, I mean, I can imagine how the response of uh, the Jewish people at that point to uh, such a statement from our Lord. Moving on to verse uh, uh, chapter 14, you'll notice a a parable that really kind of illustrates this well. Jesus said to them, uh, a certain man gave a, a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time and said to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and must go and see it. I ask that you have me excused. And and another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Again, when I read this passage, I think of that song we sing in youth group. Uh, Do you guys remember that song? I cannot come to the banquet. Don't, Don't bother me now. I married a wife. I bought me a cow. Yeah, okay, a few of you. I have fields and commitments that cost a pretty sum. Please pray, hold me excused. I cannot come. And then someone in the youth group, of course, switched some of the words around, and I won't tell you what they said because it'll, they'll stick in your head kind of thing. Yeah, but anyway, I cannot come to the banquet. So anyway, I, I always thought of this as a song uh, that, that you just sang in the youth group, but there's a message here. Uh, here's God's people that Jesus was coming to minister to, but they reject him. And they're basically saying, yo, I can't come. I've got other priorities. I'm busy in the temple kind of thing. And so as a result, well, you know what? I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Verse 21. So that servant came. Here's a guy inviting all these people to to this mighty banquet, to the the Lord's uh, feast. He reported these things to his master. And the master, in this case, represents God. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, master, it is done as you commanded and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. So there again, God uh, reaching out to his chosen people, the, the nation of Israel, But them saying, you know what? We're not interested. We we want a political leader. And this Jesus guy, he's not who we're looking for. And as a result, God says, you know what? I'm going to extend this great salvation to uh, all the world. Did you know that there is a great commission in the book of Luke? I've always thought the great commission was just in Matthew 28, uh, Mark 16, and Acts 1. But listen to these words as uh, Jesus uh, said some of his final words here in uh, Luke 24. Then Jesus said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for, for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Notice it says to all nations. God has a heart for his chosen people, but also a heart for all the world, for all nations. And you are witnesses of these things. 
And listen to these words, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that follows in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So there they are in Jerusalem. Dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And it's, like I said, there's three times that the entire Jewish nation would gather in Jerusalem for a feast. And the day of Pentecost was the festival of first fruits. It's kind of like the harvest had just started. And so they would cut the first part of the harvest. They would take it to Jerusalem and say, Lord, you know, basically we know you've blessed us this far. We know that many more blessings are to come. And uh, so they had this, this time of celebration called uh, festival of um, first fruits or Pentecost. And it's just interesting that I mean, that's a whole different sermon. I'm getting into a whole different sermon. But anyway, uh, I'll do my Pentecost sermon if you invite me back. Um, but anyway, so there they are. Uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit comes. Oh, I'm getting ahead, of myself. <coughs> getting ahead of myself again. The Holy Spirit comes on that early church uh, that are gathered together. And it comes like this rushing mighty wind and flames of fire settle on each one. And they start, you know, sharing the great things of God in all these different languages. Well, meanwhile... All of, you know, the Jewish people have gathered to Jerusalem from all these different languages, from all these different nations, and they all hear the good things of God in their own language. And they're like, wow, this is amazing, you know? And, uh, of course, some go, okay, these guys are into the sauce early kind of thing. They've been, you know, been drinking already kind of thing. And then, of course, Peter gets up, and he uh, presents a great gospel message. And in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And if we jump to 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So the gospel starts there in Jerusalem. The gospel comes to the Jewish nation as Jesus had commanded. But for a while, it's like the, the disciples kind of dawdled. He, Jesus had said, you know what? When you're endued with power from on high, then you're going to be my witnesses, right? Well, they kind of sat around Jerusalem for a while and God chose to use persecution to move the gospel forward. At that time, chapter 8 says, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Okay, so they're moving. They start off in Jerusalem. Remember the uh, Great Commission? Uh, You're going to be my disciples in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And uh, verse 4 of Acts 8, therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. So God chose to use persecution to, to get his people out of Jerusalem so that the gospel would spread. In Acts 8, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So there, uh, the gospel, uh, the, the Great Commission is being fulfilled as Philip goes and preaches the gospel in Samaria. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. And verse 8, is this a beautiful verse? And there was great joy in that city. When people hear of Christ and see their need for a Savior and they respond and say, Lord, I need you. Come into my life. I want to live for you. The response is great joy. The story goes on. There's a fellow by the name of Simon, verse 13. Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. 
Now when the, the apostles who were at, were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received, received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So remember that the Jewish followers of Jesus had received the Holy Spirit. What's going to happen next here in Samaria? For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit comes on the Jewish believers, comes on Samaritan believers. But the story doesn't end there. Acts chapter 10. Uh, there's a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what is called the Italian Regiment. So here's this army guy. He's living up along the coast. And uh, listen to, see what he's all done. He's a devout man who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So here's this foreigner, here's this Gentile, this Roman uh, head honcho kind of guy, and he's praying to God. He's saying, God, would you reveal yourself to me? I, I know you're out there, but, you know, let me know who you are. Well, God says, you know, God speaks to Cornelius and says, you know what, send, uh, there's a guy down in Joppa by the name of Peter. Send for him. He'll, he'll come up here and he'll explain all this to you. And while Peter does, and if you know this story, he comes rather reluctantly because he's like, what, what do you mean? This gospel is for Gentiles? What? You know, anyway, uh, like I said, there's a whole backstory there. And so Peter comes, finally obedient, and he explains the gospel to Cornelius and his family. And notice what verse 44 says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed, as in Jewish followers of Jesus, were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. So the gospel comes to the Jewish people, and the Holy Spirit comes, then on Samaritans, and then on Gentiles, revealing God's heart for, for his people, but also for the entire world. And I don't know if there's anyone here with a Jewish background, I, I don't think I, I do, but when I read this verse, it's exciting that God loved us so much that the gospel could come to us, that, that it wasn't just his chosen people, the people of Israel, but that we could hear the gospel as well. Well, of course, the Great Commission, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And of course, we read all about that in the book of Acts, where uh, the gospel goes forth and Paul plants churches in places like Colossae, Ephesus, uh, Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, and great things happen, the great missionary endeavor. But in Acts chapter 18, they run into a bit of a roadblock. Like Paul would usually go into a city and he'd meet in the synagogue and kind of start the connection with the Jewish uh, people there and explain to them, hey, the Messiah has come, and then, and then take it from there. But in Acts 18, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Wow, imagine that. You know, you've, you've kind of studied the Torah, the Old Testament for years, you know, and you know there's a Messiah coming. And these people come and they explain that to you and you say, oh, you know what, that's not what I'm after. And they say, okay, well, you, you had your chance. Now we're going to take this to outsiders, you know. And of course, that kind of uh, set the tone of the rest of the book of Acts. So how do we respond to this? Here comes Jesus. He comes into uh, the synagogue and explains to his own townspeople. And he reads from Isaiah 61 and says, you know what, 
uh, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And they basically chase him out of town. They're about to kill him, right? So they respond in rejection. So how do we uh, respond as we hear the gospel? What went wrong? And how can we avoid the same pitfalls? You know, we're kind of in a different era, different scenario kind of thing. But what can we learn from the response of the people in these stories, their rejection of the Messiah? Well, there's a few things that come uh, to mind as a bit of a homework, a bit of a, some take-homes that uh, we could perhaps ponder as we uh, wind things down this morning. First of all, beware of a calloused heart. Beware of a hard heart. I think of those uh, Jewish leaders in Jesus' day that, you know, they're religious. Uh, they were quite a strong religious establishment. Basically, if Rome sent a governor that they didn't like, then they would basically... Um, uh, rally, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Lobby, lobby uh, Rome and say, you know what, we don't like this guy. And, and Rome would turf him and replace him with someone else. That was the case of uh, Pontius Pilate, I believe. Uh, he was uh, replaced the guy that uh, the Jews wanted fired kind of thing. And so it had been, become this powerful bureaucracy and lost its focus. And, uh, you know, and of course, in our day and age, we're kind of, like I said, in a different scenario. I don't imagine, you know, Killarney Mennonite Church has direct rallying power with, you know, Justin and Ottawa kind of thing, but, uh, you know, that kind of thing. But sometimes it becomes, even within these church pews and, and in meetings and things, becomes a bit of a, a battleground and, and our hearts get, get hardened, you know, and we kind of get in this, in this rut of instead of enjoying the good things of God and the great you know, salvation that we have, we kind of pit ourselves against each other and things like music and different ways of doing things and so on. So let's remember to keep our hearts soft and open to the things of the Lord. Secondly, beware of a spirit of entitlement. Again, the religious leaders in Jesus, they, they basically had their, their way of doing things and instead of saying, you know, when Jesus came on the scene saying, hey, this is the Messiah, this is the one we've been reading about, this is the one we've been looking for, he was a threat to them. And uh, basically, they just rejected uh, what Jesus came to bring. Thirdly, beware of the social club, okay? Beware of the social club. Uh, again, uh, in, that, in the temple, in the, the religious establishment, very entrenched political uh, leaders and that kind of thing. And so sometimes our churches can be that way as well. And we, we tend to sometimes have this mentality of us for and no more. It's kind of like, you know, we've got our little, little club and stuff and we're comfortable here and, and that kind of thing. And uh, the one thing about this, the COVID-19, it's really kind of revealed the heart of, of churches. You know, is there, and it's been exciting, it's really pushed pastors. I mean, I've talked to pastors that are just on the edge of burnout from just all the work they've had to do. I mean, basically overnight, pretty much these pastors had to turn into uh, TV stars, right? Because everything went online just instantly and like, oh, yikes, you know? And these guys are weary and, and that kind of thing. And uh, anyway, uh, where was I going with that thought? Uh, anyway, beware of the social club, yeah. Uh, uh, but sometimes we, we have the privilege of going to a number of churches to speak and so on. And uh, I guess my question to you, where this is all going is, is, is the church like a hospital where, where people, the hurting can come in and find that healing that they need? Or are we just kind of like a, you know, a fashion show or whatever? We're just, you know, we're here in our best clothes on our best behavior kind of thing. And uh, are we welcoming to those in need of the Lord? 
And finally, beware of hoarding. Um, and this is something I need to do in my life, but in a spiritual sense, you know, God has given us so much. I mean, he's given us, um, you know, eternal life so that when our time here on earth is over, we get to enjoy eternity with him if we've accepted that gift of salvation through Jesus. But do we keep it to ourselves or do we share it with others? I was just uh, talking to uh, our insurance agent on, on Friday and uh, this individual told the story of a church north of Saskatoon or the, this minnow, minnow darp up there, uh, this Mennonite community north of Saskatoon. And over the years, it's just been, you know, this deeply entrenched Mennonite hotspot, you know, and if you've ever traveled north of Saskatoon, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But anyway, uh, so this, apparently some Muslims moved to town and they bought the food store, you know. And, and these people in, in this particular story that I was hearing on Friday, they're like, you know what? We're inviting those people to everything. We're inviting them over for meals. We're, we're inviting them to our ladies' groups and stuff like that. In two or three years, we believe she's going to make a decision to follow Jesus. I'm like, wow. Like, what an attitude. So often we're kind of like, oh, we're over here and, and this is, you know, this is whatever. You know, I won't say the word or whatever. They're, you know, a, a challenge, a, you know, whatever. Instead of saying, you know what? Hey, these people are different, but they need Jesus too, you know? And I think of uh, so often after we finish speaking here, we go and, uh, and feast down at the, uh, uh, the restaurant <clears throat> along Main Street. And of course, you see the, the little uh, idols or, or whatever kind of thing. And, and it's kind of like, okay, that's kind of different. But do we focus on what's different or do we say, you know what? Man, we've got, we've got a savior that, that can, you know, that can reach these people that, you know, in a way that no idol could. And if, if you need more reading about that, the Old Testament is all full of that where, you know, people carve these idols and stuff and they're bowing down to them. It's just like, you just made that thing. What are you doing bowing down to it? We've got the God of the universe that, that has reached to us with salvation. And, uh, you know, we need to share that. And I just want to encourage you as a church to continue to shine that light here in Killarney and beyond to be outward focused. And um, basically, uh, like I said, you know, people have come from all these different nations. Uh, it's like the mission field has come to us. You know, we've got so many people from other countries uh, come to our shores now. And uh, man, I mean, you can reach countries that you don't even have to go overseas. They're right here in our neighborhood. So may God help us to be faithful that uh, we don't make the same mistakes that uh, those that Jesus came uh, to, uh, the mistakes that they made. So let's be uh, uh, mindful of that. I don't know. Hopefully that all makes sense. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the great salvation that you have extended to us. And for many within the sound of my voice, um, they have chosen to follow you. But Lord, help us to realize that the treasure you have given to us in that salvation is not something to take for granted, not something to, to just hoard, to keep to ourselves, but it's a gift that needs to be shared. So Lord, in my heart and in the hearts of each of these friends gathered here this morning, would you stir us by your spirit and even create in our hearts a, a, a burden for, for our next door neighbors, for the people down the road from us that don't have a relationship with you. Help us to be faithful to, uh, to sharing your great gospel message in these days where there's so much uncertainty, so much fear, so many questions. Lord, you've given us an opportunity. Help us to be faithful. And uh, Lord, we, we look forward to that day when we see you face to face. And I pray that we will each bring many with us to that great banquet, that great marriage supper of the Lamb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just wanted to say in closing, uh, Turtle Mountain, um, 
I was going ahead full speed, as you probably realize, they had a bit of a hiccup this last week, but uh, this week they're doing day camps in Brandon, and then the next week in Verdon, and so keep praying for them, and if you know people in those areas, um, I think they've got lots of room for more kiddos to come at McDermott Drive Alliance this week in Brandon, and, uh, and then I think Verdon Baptist the following week, and then after that, the camp will be having some events uh, right on site, so keep your ears to the ground, some fun stuff coming to Turtle Mountain Bible Camp this summer. Thanks for letting me be here.